0: Welcome back to the Wiggly Podcast. This is episode 188. It's Michael here with the second part of the two parter, wrapping up our collection of interviews with people who dropped into the Wiggly Garden at the Hay Festival hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, during the course of making wormeries to take home, I got talking to, talk to this, uh, this very friendly gentleman uh, who has uh, two wonderful children who have now got uh, wormeries in a plastic bottle to take home was telling me all about his partner who comes along to Hay Festival uh, practically every year to talk about green energy, sustainable energy. And apparently you're uh, a supplier of, of green energy. Yes. Juliet Davenport. Yes. L- nonetheless, Lovely to speak to you.
2: Lovely to speak to you too. So what are you doing
1: What are you doing at the festival this year?
2: Well, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself actually. Okay. I've come to see lots of different things. Things I don't normally see. Because right. when you're involved in sustainable energy, you can get your head stuck in it sometimes. So yeah. I've been to see the wild food gourmand.
1: Okay. About
2: what he did and living on the land, what it meant to him. Right. We've been to see Che Guevara, which is completely different. Okay. But again, a revolutionary in a, in a world that was stuck in two big areas and in a sense i kind of see good energy and what we do alternative energy really as a revolutionary world okay. thinking and how we can return to living closer to the land and living much more related ourselves to energy rather than just it being a distant thing in the um, somebody else's control isn't
1: that doesn't that, that smack of society generally there isn't it a complete uh, d- detachment from everything that's provided for us
2: yes ex- you know externally I think what's interesting, I think food has moved much closer. I think we've got much closer to food. We're
1: we have, I think, recently, certainly. Yeah. There's been, there's been, well, there's been quite a lot of promotion on television. You know, it's the yeah. like, whole personality, celebrity kind of thing, um, getting the message across, I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah, no-one's no really taken the ball by the horns so far as, as green energy is concerned. We, we hear about the conflicts associated with the siting uh, wind farms and the yes. like. But, um, but other than that, you no-one's know, no really said, right, come on, you know, let's, uh, let's make a real difference. And let's just buy from uh, a supplier that uses wind or or tide or, or biomass to, to make energy from.
2: I think there are there are some people who who are thinking that way, but they're kind of they're still quite small voices, and there's so many other things going on in the world. So Innocent Drinks, for example, have always bought their stuff from green energy. There's there's a company called Mackie's Ice Cream who generate their own power from three wind turbines. Okay. So I think there are small cases of it, but I don't think the stories are getting out. So what
1: what do you do exactly then, Julia? You you, you have a company, don't you?
2: Yes. Well, I I set up a company because I was originally an atmospheric physicist. Okay. So I kind of found out about climate change through my studying. And before that was kind of not really an environmentalist at all. I went to university and then said, okay, this is the area I want to dedicate the rest of my life to.
1: And, um, so, what's the difference between an atmospheric physicist and a conventional physicist?
2: Uh, well, I suppose you do a specialist area in, in studying the atmosphere right.
1: and That's how
2: that interacts <laughs> that with the planet.
1: Sense, <laughs> it? I am not sure whether I've just asked a ridiculously <laughs> stupid question, or, uh,
2: no? No, I don't think so. Or, uh, <laughs> it could be. I it could be a
1: simple answer, but yeah,
2: <laughs> the physicists of, 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 of general atmosphere of people or something. Okay, but no, yeah, you're right. No, it's to do. With, it's to do with how our atmosphere interacts with the planet.
1: Okay, wonderful
2: and so I, I kind of then started getting involved in government stuff and all that but it all seemed so distant nobody was taking any notice and, and politicians are useless I'm sorry they are well they were and I still think they are, <laughs> they <certainly> are. <laughs> um, and they just they just said well we're not going to do anything until till our people tell us to do something so yeah. I thought okay well I need to get clear, closer to people so that's why I set up a company
1: Wonderful. And how's your company doing? And you supply electricity. Yeah. How does that work then? I mean, have you got a great big acreage where you've got a, a huge inordinate amount of uh, machinery that generates electricity <laughs> or what?
2: Well, we've got about, we've now got about 620 generators. Oh, okay. So these are people, companies, organisations, communities yeah. who generate power. Right. And sometimes they use part of it and we buy any excess that they've got left over.
1: So how does that work? How do you, well, how do you well work? we use the National
2: wow. Grid so the national grid we use as an overall system and essentially what we do is we connect people who the, the financials I suppose it's by it's by the more you buy the more we have to source Okay. so so we connect you with, with um, we connect all our customers with generators that's kind of how it works I see. in terms of the physical electricity it doesn't go from a generator to a home it no, doesn't work like no, that no 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 it's more it's more like a kind of knock on effect so in fact electrons don't move they just bump into each other okay. or vibrate and so you get vibration at one end and they move all the way down okay that's kind of how it works okay well, I know. <laughs> you're looking slightly confused yeah,
0: yeah
1: well that's just my general demeanor
2: <laughs> all right okay oh. um yeah. so what what we do is the more customers we get the more people we go and buy power from that's how it works really we also generate a bit ourselves so we've got about of the power that we buy, we buy from a generator that we own. But what we try to do is create a community of lots of other independent generators. Because actually what's happened in, in the UK is that we've got too many big power stations centrally owned so that when you try and change things it's really hard yeah, and what sure. we need is far more people involved in generating and being generators that makes um, perfect sense. and that, that's what we're trying to be the facilitator for that so breaking down the kind of the traditional structure in a way
1: okay so what are the implications then how do people come to your company was it green energy or uh, good energy good energy okay yeah. now, i've heard of uh, ecotricity yeah uh, i haven't heard of, uh, of good energy before but that's probably because i'm just ignorant <laughs> No. I'm sure the listener will will be probably aware of it, but how do how do people if they're for instance subscribing to to British Gas or Empire or something how do they how do they change how could they go to you and, and what would it cost them extra?
2: Yeah, it would. It would. I mean, the, the easiest way to change is look up Good Energy on the internet. That's probably the easiest way. If if are internet savvy, or if not, you can call us and, and speak to you can you can okay. look it up. And but you
1: could just whack it into Google. Could you yeah. Good Energy and it'll come up with yeah. your site?
2: Yes, exactly. And then go into our site. And have a look around. And in there it got we've got different sections about whether you want to become a generator yourself. So if you decided, actually, I don't want to just buy power, I want to be a generator, you can go and find out how to do that through our site. Or if you don't feel that like you want to go that far yet, maybe just become a customer. Or if not, just find the information. We've got lots of information about, we did, we sort of, we've got a whole advice piece, which is about how you yourself can change how you use energy. Right. So what's the most effective way in your home? How your lifestyle affects how you use energy um, to reduce your impact. Fantastic.
1: So The uh, the bottom line then. So a a typical I don't know uh, British gas customer. What's it going to cost them extra per quarter to have uh, to have their electricity from a supplier where there are no implications in in terms of uh, you know increasing the the, uh, the climate change off the back of burning fossil fuels? Well, we worked
2: out it's about pound a week. Is that all? So if I translate, that's about £12 a month.
1: Is that all? Yes. Right. That's, that's not much, is it, then, really, no. in the big scheme of things? Not in the big scheme so, of things. Uh, yeah, but think, also yeah. what we
2: try hope is that people will save the same amount by investing in energy efficiency.
1: OK. That's wonderful. OK. <laughs> Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, too. Lovely to meet you.
1: a different day today, slightly blowy typical kind of uh, the festival really, not quite as bad as last year but I'm fortunate enough to be uh, joined by a gentleman called Charles Paws. Paws. Yeah. Fantastic garden photographer. Yeah. This nonetheless,
0: is a, this is a rubbish day for garden photography. I tell you, <laughs> the one thing that garden photographers hate is wind, and uh, Hay has got it in spades today. Well, it's like broken cloud. You know, it's kind of these are uh, atmospheric conditions. The light does it not lend itself to uh, some some neat pickies? Well, it's actually. It's. I hate to be picky, but uh, there isn't enough cloud around because uh, it's too bright for photography. <laughs> so it's too bright and it's too windy. <laughs> okay, so i be okay. just glad to you know, right, go in a tent right. somewhere and have a nice. So so you're not
1: planning to take any uh, ace shots of the Wiggly Garden while you're you're over here?
0: Sadly, no. I'm a tripod man and uh, it's not with me in the car. I'm here really just to, we've just done a talk. Stephen Anderton, the author and me have uh, done a talk on our book, Discovering Welsh Gardens. Okay. And it's uh, the first book that's been on Welsh Gardens. We actually have wonderful gardens in Wales here, but they're not very well known. So we thought that we needed a book. Why is that? I think it's partly because of things like the Severn Bridge. People won't cross over the Severn Bridge and come to it's Wales. costs five pound 14 eh, you know. I know, but you know, <laughs> hey, it's good value. It's a beautiful country, and uh, the gardens <laughs> I'm are worth sure it. Not sure the bridge is an inhibiting factor.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure that the bridge is the reason, but it's uh, you get it's, out possibly, for free. Uh,
0: it's like one of the only the only good thing to come out of Wales is the road to England. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the gardens, and we do have fantastic gardens. Oh, yeah, I'm sure well, if, Wales I'm, is beautiful. It's I'm astonishing. Just country. Looking down. Isn't
1: this lovely ragged robin you've got here. I know it's done so well, isn't it this year? Isn't it good? Well, essentially, this is a floodplain, of course. So, uh, so it's uh, <laughs> suited for the, to to ragged robin nicely. Yeah, and it, and it does well. I mean, the turf only went down uh, where we, about 14 months ago, and and, it, and it's improved dramatically on what it was last year, it which is uh, which is good. Because ragged robin can go one or two ways, you know. It's uh, it can flourish, uh, or equally it can uh, it can deteriorate. You know.
0: Well, I tell you, I was uh, photographing I'd... at the Chelsea Flower Show last week, and this of your ragged robin and the tree stumps wouldn't have looked out of place in any of the show gardens. Yeah, truly, fantastic. truly, it looks good. But, I mean, yeah, discovering Welsh gardens, it, you know, it's been a discovery. The, the book is stuffed full of, you know, some really fantastic gardens in Wales, like Bodnant and Powys Castle, but there's also really nice little gardens that people have been making quietly away for yeah. a few years and maybe just opening the National Garden Scheme. And gardens like ours, actually, at Bedou House down at Devorden, which is getting to be quite well known, as someone called it in the book, I think Stephen described it as the most controversial garden in Wales, for its credit, but, right. uh, you know, and we open regularly to the public, but... You know, there's a whole range of gardens of so different what does the, what does the book
1: offer? I mean, presumably you've got some the, the well,
0: amazing imagery. What's particular is that for each of the main gardens in the book, we've given ten pages to each garden, so it's offering a really good view about each of the gardens that we feature. But what's particular also is that Stephen has been writing in the book in a way that's quite unusual for garden writing, because he's been willing to say some things that are, well, let's say, a little bit critical about some of the gardens or some aspects of the gardens. And usually, in garden writing, you just don't get anyone saying anything other than everything's lovely in this garden. Now, I know your ragged robin looks good and your vegetable patch looks good, but I'm sure if we spent a few minutes i might find something that i thought no well, I, don't, I don't think you would you don't think i would <laughs> <laughs> actually i'm just i'm struggling here this is a near perfect <laughs> garden isn't it it's <laughs> perfect perfectly uh, imperfect yeah, you're fine. but anyway so we have actually brought out i think some things about the gardens that people you know would read and think gosh you know that's quite a thing to say you know that 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 would be better off without that or that needs a chainsaw or but that's constructive in my view people need to to be more willing to discuss gardens more openly and honestly than just writing about them saying they're all looking fantastic.
1: Julie, really? uh, indeed, yeah I mean you're absolutely right. And uh, so it, so the, the kind of the
0: audience that came along to your event earlier on, I mean what sort of questions did you get asked? I'm glad to say that we didn't get asked about any kind of Plant care questions. You, know, you you get a panel of people, people <laughs> interested I? in gardens, and they want to know about their cactus. On my yeah, <laughs> That's right. I have no idea. The best question was actually someone asked us about what we thought uh, we ought to be doing with the Olympic Garden, because you know there's going to okay. be a garden created at the Olympic site okay. in London, and uh, we were asked about you know what kind of garden we thought know, that would be, be nice. Will that be
1: left as a legacy? It's difficult to say. I mean, hopefully, even hopefully, I and mean, I suppose you would aspire to, to creating something that can uh, benefit. Uh, the community in the long term so it's, it's something that's got longevity. Yeah,
0: well, it'll probably get bought and transplanted in Dubai or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So it's concerning
1: about so. the Olympics, you know, you kind of think one of the, one of the, pretty much one of the only, real. I mean, I'm slightly biased, <laughs> one of the only good things about the Olympics is what the, what, uh, what it leaves behind. Yeah, well, <laughs> Cause that's it's true because it's a fairly astonishing waste of money generally. But yeah, yeah we shall see. Oh, okay. no, I think
0: it will be an absolute nightmare. It's, everything's going to be done by committee, isn't it? You yeah, know, you sure can see it is. how people can be. A room full of people discussing what they've got to have in a garden. I kind of feel a bit despondent about gardening by committee. You know, yeah, you need to take
1: charge. I mean, a garden is ultimately something that uh, that you, I suppose you, a, a, a single person or possibly exactly. a pair of you, take take yeah. responsibility for. And yeah. uh, it, things get complicated. Everyone's got a slightly different idea of of, uh, of what should be done and how it should be done. Yeah, when you've got too many people involved in a garden. So, know, Charles, what do you what do you do with your most of your time then? How do you spend
0: most of your time? I mean, presumably you're you're a practical man. You spend reasonable well, amount of time outside. Yeah, uh, I mean I'm a hands-on gardener, so if I'm not taking photographs of gardens, I'm working in our own garden. At the minute, I'm working on we've discovered an old ruin in our grounds and I've been rebuilding it for about 20 years. And just oh, this wow. last week okay. I actually got to f- ground level, the floor yeah. level okay. and found this old doorstep of this 18th century cottage just sitting there. Oh, this wow. slate doorstep. so so
1: a practical, not a folly then, something that was a no, practical use. No. No, it w- it was
0: a it was a little cottage and we're now kind of bringing it right in the middle of our garden so I've rebuilt the walls and we're gonna just gently add some ferns and nothing too loud and special and you know okay. but quiet and
1: uh, Yeah, yeah well that's, uh, that's I suppose that's the quintessential ruin isn't it you know something that's soft and
0: shady and, yeah. and almost slightly secretive and utterly yeah. romantic I know I'm so excited about it actually I want people to there come and are. see it because yeah, yeah. we open our garden at vedu house from June through till August on okay. Sunday afternoons. And how do you advertise? How can people find we, out about when and how they can get don't, We don't. We usually come to people like Wiggly Wigglers so I can give a plug for my own yeah. garden opening. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So when is your garden opening? Well, it's it's from June through to August on Sunday afternoons from okay. 2 till 5. And the garden is called Vedu House right? and it's two miles out of Devorden Village, which is near Chepstow. Okay and it's, and it's in, relatively easy to find. Well we're in the webs- we've got a website Okay, uh, and we're you know Google on VEDDW, and you'll get to our website. And Presumably, people. uh, Your your website has a host of images on there. It uh, does actually.
1: People people appreciate and uh, and some of which uh, will almost certainly be in your book.
0: Yeah, and the book is on the website, so people can click through to the from the website to the publishers, and it's all terribly tidy. And this is what's fantastic about the (laughs) web, isn't it? (laughs)
1: It is absolutely. Yeah, the web is
0: a is a wonderful thing indeed. Okay, thank you very much, Charles. Well, nice to meet you. Nice to see uh, such a lovely garden. There must be something wrong here somewhere.
1: Well, as the last Friday of the festival begins, uh, on what is looking a very promising day yet again, which kind of makes all the difference on this card, <laughs> as you can appreciate, <laughs> <laughs> weather is key, you know. Uh, I've been joined by a gentleman who uh, our own Rachel Harries has, has spoken to, I think, previously, who's going to talk about possibly we've looked at hedgehogs before, but I think this, this gentleman's going to talk about why he's fascinated with hedgehogs, and
3: ultimately what this kind of garden could offer your average hedgehog. So uh, <laughs> I wonder if you'd introduce yourself, sir. Hi, well thank you. My name's Hugh Warwick, and I've uh, recently written a book called A Prickly Affair, My Life with Hedgehogs, which sounds sort of terribly sort of whimsical and fun, yeah. but actually does a whole bunch of the natural history of hedgehogs, but couched in the stories that people tell, because it, I mean, I've just, just come from the green room here, and in the space of a couple of minutes, I had people I've sort of heard of and I'm nervous of, like sort of Kate Adie and, and Rosie Boycott come in and each time go, I'm introduced and they go oh gosh, well we had a hedgehog in our garden and every single person I've met they always have a hedgehog story and that's why I think they're so crucial as an animal, okay. because they are this sort of one little connection with the wild that we get right, something right. which no other animal can offer Fantastic. but this is amazing, so is this garden here all the time or so do anyway, you build I mean, it each year?
1: This uh, this garden's here, um, we, we put it in about 14 months ago and okay. it'll be here for for another sort of three or four years the idea was to create something that, that could be improved upon year on year, you know, so uh, so this year we put in the willow bowers and the chamomile bund and uh, added a few extra logs and we had a chap uh, Mark Eccleston came over and did some stuff with the kids on Wednesday in, in all the rain, what, uh, what few people braved the, uh, the torrential <laughs> downpour to, uh, to come and enjoy putting some slates and logs together and, and interestingly, I think you'll find that there's a, there's a rather large cavity in the middle of that habitat pile that t- might lend itself it to it. As soon as I was to, uh, looking over uh, there, I
3: I saw that pile, and I thought, well, look here, there's bumblebee habitats in there, there's all sorts of other animal habitats in there, but wouldn't it be great if the space underneath? And I can see there's some straw pulled in. I mean, that's the sort of thing. All a garden needs to be hedgehog-friendly, apart from having hedgehogs nearby, is to have food and to have shelter I mean that's really all hedgehogs need their, their needs are very simple and the food comes in the form of the invertebrate pests which you want to get rid of and the shelter comes from you not doing too much gardening and okay. as I do a lot of talks with the WI and that's always a question I'm asked <laughs> is, don't, don't we all <laughs> oh, yeah, yes <laughs> and I love it because one of the questions I'm always asked is how do I make my garden more hedgehog friendly and I said do less Gardening. Yeah. Simple as that. Do not manicure things. Do not kill things. Do not wipe all the insects and the plants off the face of the earth, apart from a few things in your borders that you want to keep. Let there be wild patches, because with thrives on neglect. Absolutely, and a little bit of wildness in the corner of your garden doesn't. Doesn't remove from the quality of your garden and adds to the quality of the wildlife habitat.
1: Okay, it's an interesting thing there. I mean, why? You, you know, you seem like a perfectly sensible bloke. And, uh, I mean, you do. <laughs> the I delights of radio, those, you oddly. You know, when you when you, you talk about dog owners, you often say, "Well, people look like their dogs," and I, I can see similarities between you and, uh, and possibly a nice little cuddly hedgehog. I, I, yeah. I mean, that in a very manly way. <laughs> you understand? But equally, I, you know, it, it does. I'm slightly puzzled
3: by why someone would be so passionate. About hedgehogs to the extent that they would uh, write a book. <laughs> well, well, I started out, and I still am actually an ecologist. I mean, I, I'm my background is studying the hedgehog in a very practical and pragmatic way, looking at the impact of the hedgehogs on the ground-nesting birds of um, Orkney. I was okay. up in Orkney? In the, did you go? Did you were you part of that uh, taking? Well, uh, that was that Orkney. Then there's the Uists in the Outer Hebrides, which is the more recent story, and I've been involved with both of these these events okay. and studying the hedgehogs, trying to assess the impact of of the hedgehogs on the birds but also trying to look at the best ways of managing the populations. So my background is actually quite sort of sensible, I like to think. But then what has happened is, as I've become more... I spend more time studying the hedgehog. Because right when I started, there was very little work uh, this said over 20 years ago, very little work done on what hedgehogs actually do. Yeah. There's lots of stuff about the physiology, uh, the physiological fluctuations of hormones inside hedgehogs in hibernation. There was loads of technical details about that. And now people are looking at the genetics of hedgehogs and all that sort of lab-based stuff. But actually doing what do hedgehogs do, how do they live, how do they integrate into the ecosystem it's just, well it's, it's grunt work it's boring work, people don't normally do it, and hedgehogs don't fit the bill for the normal species to be studied, they are normally pest species prey species or game species right. and they're none of those so, so we don't, we, people have ignored the hedgehog, so I started thinking well this is simply, wow, okay there's an absence of knowledge, let's look at it and then as I've got to know more about the hedgehog, I've, I've done more talks, I get to meet more people who are far more passionately involved with hedgehogs than I am. And, and from that has grown. Is that possible? Oh, really? I'm oh, talking to you now. Really, <laughs> really, really, it is yeah, much well, more possible. Yeah, I went to America and there were some things happening over there. The Rocky Mountain okay. Hedgehog Show, which is a bit like Crufts, but with prickles, um, <laughs> rounded off with the International Hedgehog <laughs> Olympic Games. And, no, no, it is true. Uh, well, all documented was, in my okay. book, I'm afraid. Uh, true. But okay. so, so I met all these people in the UK in particular who are very passionate the hedgehog carers and things, and really, I mean, what, what my book is, is as much about the stories of these people and about the reason behind their absolute passion. I've, I look at these people as my sort of escape mechanism because, as you yourself have indicated, people will make assumptions about my sanity with regards to the passion with which I talk about headshots. But I look to these people and go, but compared to them, I'm just really normal <laughs> and okay. so they are just I, I, it's, it's really good so right. that's one of the reasons why I track them down it's okay. just so I can I can reassure myself
1: right. <laughs> oh nice <laughs> okay well I think we should uh, I think we should probably leave it there and I'm just
3: wondering though um, your uh, fantastic book how do people get hold of it how can they oh, how can they get hold of a copy Amazon, wherever I mean it's all, all best bookshops Or come to one of my talks okay, and I'll and sign so do it you,
1: do you want to tell us what it's called again it's
3: called A Prickly Affair My Life with Hedgehogs or if you're listening in America it's called The Hedgehog's Dilemma, which was actually the title I wanted. But okay. uh, Bloomsbury chose a different title in the uh, States. Oh, uh, no, or Penguin chose a different one here. Well, no, you can swallow that, can't you? If, you if, if Bloomsbury are prepared to publish a book for you, you can probably swallow well, the Well, Penguin that they are willing to, to do it here. Indeed. But no, a pretty affair. It's, it's, Go it's, with it. It's entertaining, it's fun, it's, you'll learn stuff, but you won't really notice you're doing it. OK, wonderful. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure.
1: Well, the very first interview at the Hay Festival this year is uh, going to be undertaken by a gentleman called Steve Trent. And it was a a fantastic event that's lined up for the first Friday of the festival this year. And it caught my eye because obviously, as far as the listeners are aware, I'm uh, decidedly keen on all things fish-like. So the expression pirate fishing was something that uh, I was particularly attracted to. So I've managed to, to hunt this gentleman down And uh, it's, good to, it's good to meet you And I wonder if you'd sort of introduce yourself to the listener And, uh, and, and tell them exactly what you're doing up here
4: Great to meet you too And um, as you said I'm called Steve Trent I'm one of the founding directors of the Environmental Justice Foundation Okay. And today at Hay we are hosting a panel with John Vidal, the environment correspondent from The Guardian, right. Anthony Worrell-Thompson, the chef, right. and a gentleman who buys fish from Waitrose. Okay. He's a senior buyer. And the key to what we're talking about is how consumers and individuals, I think, can deal with an issue that's far out at sea, yeah. quite simply, and actually have an impact as an individual. My personal belief is that, as a consumer, you often have more choice and more power than you do as a voter. Right. Um, I think many, perhaps, today would agree with me on that one. And what we're talking about is we're trying to highlight the impacts of this so-called pirate fishing. These are illegal vessels that are roaming the planet, unregistered, unregulated, and they're taking very fragile and delicate fish stocks. They're targeting poor countries that have no capacity to manage or regulate or conserve their fish stocks. And they are literally stealing from the poorest people on the planet and stealing from our planet. Right. What the pirates do, in effect, is undermine all the legitimate fishing operations. They use unsustainable fishing gears like drift nets and trawls. Right. They abuse their crews. Human rights abuses are notorious on these vessels. And they are having a disproportionate impact
1: okay i mean it's, it's an interesting thing because I, when i think of overfishing generally i think of, about the lack of uh, direction that the common fisheries policy has got for instance and the and, uh, and certainly the problems associated with eu vessels fishing off some of the uh, the poorer african countries you know off the off the, uh, the sort of continental shelves there and depleting their stocks of fish so the partisan fishermen are, are losing their livelihoods and uh, and interestingly of course you know the, uh, this kind of the pirate behavior and and, uh, and mugging oil tankers off the back of uh, these kind of the relationships that, that occur in there. So it hadn't really occurred to me that um, there were real problems associated with, with illegal fishing as well, in addition to problems with quotas.
4: Yes, I mean uh, alongside the chaos that we're causing, Europeans, Japanese, North Americans, you name it, um, big industrial fisher fleets are still responsible for a, a huge amount of uh, destruction in our seas and oceans. They're not properly managed. They're still not regulated. If a politician tells you that they are, they're simply not telling the truth. Yeah. But alongside that now, this this burgeoning um, phenomenon of pirate fishing. Which is probably worth somewhere in the region of 25 billion US dollars every year. Good Lord. And as I've as just said... It's they, hard to comprehend. It is it's very hard to comprehend. And, and because it's out there, it's an unknown world to most people. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. No. But we have ways and means of dealing with these pirate fishing vessels. We could stop it now. We could do very simple things like get rid of so-called ports of convenience... There's a notorious one that supplies much of Europe's fish called Las Palmas. Right. We could close that down. That's within our power to do. You could get rid of flags of convenience, where, for example, some of these pirate fishing vessels are flying a Mongolian flag, which allows them to avoid all the controls and regulations that we have. Were they to, for example, fly a a flag from Great Britain, Uh, we could stop that tomorrow. Sure. These are s- simple solutions that could begin to introduce controls and checks and balances to force them out of our seas and oceans. Why
1: well, haven't these things already happened though? I mean surely people are aware of, uh, of these occurrences, you know uh, people in, in power must be aware that these things go on I mean uh, presumably by coming here at, at what mm. is certainly the biggest uh, literary festival in the world, mm. you're uh, looking to raise awareness about uh, the fact that it is so prevalent because it really hadn't occurred to me that that was the case?
4: I mean, why is it not being done? It's a very good question. The European Union, for example, has been very slow in looking after its own waters, as we know. You know the Mediterranean is virtually fished out. I think there's political apathy. I think politicians look at it as an issue that isn't really a vote winner. Fish don't buy you votes very commonly. It's
1: just out of mind, out of of sight, out of mind.
4: Exactly. But now at least we do have, through pressure from a whole host of organisations that have been working on this, we have the European looking at a new regulation, European-wide regulation, that would find ways and means to try and combat pirate fishing. We also need to see greater, more effective and efficient aid and assistance to developing world countries that simply have no capacity to deal with this. Nice. It's not about spending vast amounts of money, it's about spending small amounts of money cleverly and effectively in a locally appropriate way. Okay. And that could change people's worlds. and you know, I've, I've personally seen what happens when these pirate fishing vessels come in and what it means for a small local community. If they lose the fish, they lose the me- means to feed themselves. Yeah, it's sure. not about lifestyle, it's about life or death almost. Yeah. And we need to help those people. We have a, we're on a bound, we have a duty and an obligation, not least because much of this fish we know is ending up on our plates here in the UK and across the European Union. It's
1: astonishing, isn't it? And what types of species uh, should we avoid then? In, uh, I mean, what, what, what would you say? I mean, people are inclined to think, oh, I, should, I shouldn't eat cod, you know, because apparently they're endangered. Probably most of the cod that we get in our fish and chip shops in in the UK comes from Iceland now, doesn't it? You know we've we've tended to
4: fish out most of our waters. Well, it's a very good question, but what I'd like to say is it's not what you can't do; it's about what you can do. Right. And I think there are positive choices out there now. So if you look and see a Marine Stewardship Council logo. Which means that the, the fishery from which that, that fish has come from has been checked out, it's, been, it's being monitored, it's being regulated, and it's efficient and effective by that. Right. And I'd also say to everyone, ask your retailer, ask your fishmonger, ask your restaurant if that's where you're eating it. Where did it come from? How do you know it's legal and it hasn't been stolen from some poor person in sub-Saharan Africa? And make sure that they understand that you are concerned and you want a good product a product that's been fished sustainably using science-based management and that is not going to cause a really, really big problem for our children and future generations. OK.
1: And presumably, if Waitrose are sitting in our panel later on for your event, mm. they're already actively pursuing uh, the right choice of, of product to purchase. Um, but would you say that was the case for uh, other supermarkets, you know, Tesco's and Asda and whatnot? Do they have the same sort of purchasing policies? Definitely not.
4: Definitely not. I think the truth is uh, Waitrose have taken a very responsible approach. I think if you talk to them openly, and honestly they'd say at first it was about quality, and now they recognise it's also about conservation and environment. But the other major retailers, even where they are doing some things well, there are huge gaps in their sourcing policy. So just to give you one simple example, many of them now still sell tropical shrimp prawns. Delicious, lovely, as they are. But... We've documented that for maybe one kilogram of shrimp caught, up to 25 kilograms of other species, other fish, are caught and then just thrown away. No. So... This this is an that's insane a, that's, that's practice. a huge bycatch, isn't it? It's a huge bycatch, and it's if it means more to people, they're also catching species like turtles and dolphins. It's, it's a wholly unsustainable fishery, and everybody knows this now. The science is out there, the data is out there, and I think all of the retailers have to look at where their fish is coming from, their seafood products coming from, and change now. They have a responsibility, right. and I think consumers want this. It's not all about price. I think people, I'm,
1: I think, I'm, I'm almost sure that people... Want on this i I just don't think as as we started off this conversation they're aware of the significance of of their actions you know the implications
4: of you know sort of uh, eating fish from and will almost certainly be really impoverished environments yeah well you can and and i just say again and again you can do something you can have an impact it it sounds like a very small thing but i think my experience of 20 years of doing this i've seen how collectively very small actions by individuals add up to a huge change and we can do this but you have to be vocal you have to be heard and you have to vote with your wallet right it makes perfect sense. But before you go,
1: uh, just give me a little bit of lowdown on your organisation because I'm assuming then you must spend a reasonable amount of your time campaigning for a particular purpose, in, in this case uh, sustainable fisheries. Yeah. But what, what other stuff do you do? Well,
4: the Environmental Justice Foundation makes a direct link between environmental security and human rights. And that's a broad statement, might sound a bit silly, but what I really mean by that is we understand that a safe and a secure environment, particularly for poor people, means, for many, a way of surviving, a way of living a healthy life. When you take away the basics of a secure environment, when you cut down the trees, when you get rid of the fish, when you pollute the streams, those people who have no other source of income or way of living, they suffer first, most and longest. So we make that link, and what we try and do is bring peaceful, sustainable, long-term solutions that, as I use this phrase, locally appropriate. What might work in Hay or in the UK probably might not work in Sierra Leone or Guinea-Conakry or other countries. Almost, almost certainly, I think. Yes. <laughs> so try and make them sustainable. and try. And, <coughs> if, I think everybody's interested in money these days, and what we try and do is maximise our impact with spending our money cleverly and effectively and using local people in their environment, to build their own solutions. It's not about a top-down. It's about working with them to create a world in which they are safe, they are secure, and the environment is there for the future. Fantastic. Sounds like you're doing some wonderful work. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. And you. Cheers.
0: Well, that wraps up our collection of interviews from the Hay Festival. Well, not quite. There is one more, but I'm going to save that for next week when the team will be back on the Wiggly Sofa because I think this is one that Farmer Phil in particular is going to want to discuss. So until then, it's, well, it's goodbye from just me, and of course, Monty.
2: The Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. A quince is a relative of the apple and the pear, and is yellow and lumpy, but makes nice jam. Another Montycast next week on The Wiggly Podcast.